It's too easy, the older you get, to do something you already know how to do. And it's very hard to make mistakes. But mistakes are where you learn everything, from the beginning of your career to the end. I'm Aaron Walter. And I'm Eli Woolery. I first met Paula Schur when I was a grad student in Philadelphia. I worked at the Temple University Gallery and was hanging an exhibition of her posters when we first spoke about her work. I had no idea at the time how significant her influence on graphic design was, but boy, her work sure made an impression on me. Paula's work in kinetic typography sits in the canon of graphic design history. Described as the master conjurer of the instantly familiar, Schur straddles the line between pop culture and fine art in her work. She's been a partner at Pentagram since 1991, where she's led the redesign of numerous major brands, including Citibank and Tiffany & Co. One other fun story from the show, we learned the real backstory behind the city logo that she created, and it's not the same one you'll find if you Google it. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Paula, and thanks, as always, for listening. After the interview, stay tuned for a special conversation with Heath Ceramics, founded by Edith Heath in the 1940s and played a major role in defining the mid-century modern aesthetic. Learn about the origins of Heath Ceramics and bring the history home with a special discount that we'll share at the end of the conversation. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. We're big fans of Gusto, who make it easy to run payroll, set up healthcare and other benefits for your business. They've made setting up the HR infrastructure for design better a breeze. Gusto's also one of the best design SaaS tools out there. Design Better listeners get three months free once they run their first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. And now, back to the show. Paula Sher, thank you so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Paula and I actually met many moons ago, and she doesn't remember it, but I certainly do because we both went to the same school. I went to the Tyler School of Art. Paula did as well, different times. And Paula was having a retrospective show at the Temple Gallery on 2nd Street in Philadelphia. And she came in, I remember, we had all the boxes in there, and I was helping hang that show there, which was really cool. So it's good to reconnect at kind of different points in our life here and talk design. One thing that's always been really interesting to me about your work, Paula, is that you've always looked to the past to find the future, find the way forward. Could you talk a little bit about that, why that's an important thing to you to look at design history, and how do you see that playing out in young designers today? Are they doing that enough? I think that young designers do that. They do that because the, the past and the future are all mixed up. They're one thing. And that You can't escape being influenced by things that were already done, and then you have to move them forward and find your own voice. And that what young designers tend to do is look at something from the past or even from the near past, not even the deep past, and make some mistake with it, and then invent something new as a result of the mistake. That's how things grow and move forward. And right now, the most exciting thing going on, I think, is typography because of the kind of capabilities young designers have to draw fonts and even program them. And specifically, where are some 
places that you've often looked to to better understand history of design and find inspiration and new ideas? Well, I have another a number of design history books. And of course, Tashin made these spectacular big books from the first half of the 20th century and the second half of the 20th century. And that within them is every kind of design style and ability to see what was going on as genres of things because they grouped the same sorts of work together in specific periods. So you really see the designers you already know about and other ones you didn't know about, and you see the work change and shift over the, over the course of 50 years. Well, your, your work's known to have many historical influences, things like Russian constructivism. What are other things that have inspired you over the years? Well, virtually every period of design has inspired me in one way or the other. I think that Russian constructivism was what first got me interested in modernism and all the various components in between. And then more recently, I've been working to try to figure out with contemporary fonts and older fonts how to stretch them and move them to make them expressive in relationship to a specific project. But expression for me is really the goal. It's like I don't draw. I make type express my spirit. And for me, type is image. You don't draw at all? You don't like sketch things out? Oh, I sketch things out when I'm working, um, but I wouldn't show them to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, you know, like, I mean, I, it's not like I'm, I'm not an illustrator. I don't really draw fonts. My team does when they do it for my sketches and then we perfect. But mostly what I'm doing is using type as a form of expression. And I think that type is recognizable and can be recognized as well as read. And that in the recognizability, particularly if it's in connection to some kind of institution, corporation, product, it can express a feeling that you relate to the product or the, the situation very easily. Yeah. Are there type foundries or type designers you're excited about right now? There are a lot of them, and they're, they're all at different levels. I mean, I think one of my favorite typographers is Peter Belock in the Netherlands, who is so elegant and so knowledgeable and has really pushed the profession forward and also understands history so well. And he will tell you that there's really not been a new letter form that has been invented, meaning a new font face or style since about the late 1800s. And that everything is that people are doing now has come from this massive output that has existed through the Industrial Revolution and that people are now free to riff on it and play with it and grow it. And nothing is new, but everything is new. Yeah. Well, speaking of history, Pentagram, you know, it's to our knowledge, I think it's one of the longest continuously running design agencies in the world. Is that right? That's right. 50 years old. Oldest privately owned design firm in the world. Yeah. Could you talk to us about how the creative process has evolved over, you know, those decades? Well, I've been a partner for 32 years, so I've been around for more than half. Pentagram is an organization that is designed for a designer to work. It is a place for a designer to do their work. The designer does their work in the company of other designers and that they can influence each other 
the community can influence them, the economy can influence them, and that through their collaboration and their ability to work and support themselves in an independent fashion, they can thrive. And that is the entire point of Pentagram. Colin Forbes, who founded Pentagram, had a couple of brilliant ideas. He realized that designers as a group were very dedicated to their craft. They were continually long hours and really with not so much reward, but always assumed that at the end, somebody would buy their businesses. And then, of course, nobody would buy the business and they ended up buying, selling their drawing tables. And that was sort of the end of their economic stability. And he reasoned that a design business would be much more secure if a group of like-minded professionals came in and shared profit. And the sharing of the profit is very important because it means every partner is equal. Even some partners may bill more than other partners. Some partners may be more famous than other partners. Some partners may be better inside players or take on more management. But all the partners are equal. Therefore, all the money is put into the center and shared at the end of the year. It's managed to work for 50 years in all the offices. It works in London, it works in New York, and Austin, Texas is just a one-person firm, so there's nobody to share with. But everybody pays their dues into the center, which is a Swiss company. And the major thing is the equality and the support of the partners. And that, that's what's made it survive for 50 years. If you take away those ingredients, it will fall apart. Well, you were the, the first female partner at Pentagram. And I'm curious how you think about mentoring or, or lifting up other female designers in current generations. Well, we have four women partners now in the New York office, considering there were zero. I think that women have made enorm enormous strides in design and I think are fantastic practitioners. I, what I'm disappointed in a bit is that I've noticed in newer generations, and I'm generalizing here, I found that women have been more interested in being in situations where their employees, sometimes at very big corporations, rather than striking out on their own and running their own business. It looked to me 10 years ago and 15 years ago like women were, were everywhere starting their own business. And now they seem to either be in business with their husbands or they are working for a corporation. And that doesn't mean they don't succeed or thrive. I just like the idea that they could be independent. Yeah, absolutely. I've noticed in our own students, so I've been teaching in design program for 10 years. And definitely when I started, there was more, felt like there was more of an entrepreneurial desire amongst many of the students. And that's shifted over the years to more of a focus on social impact. So I'm curious if there's maybe some correlation there too. Well, that's happened. I think, I think women have become very heavily invested in things that improve society. And I think they should. And that's wonderful. That part's great. Paula, what's the role of persuasion in a designer's work? Well, it depends upon what the designer does. There are designers who can, I would say, create things without clients. There are some that do that, and they don't have to persuade. But most of them have clients, or they have bosses, or they have corporate structures that they're functioning within. And if they can persuade those people that have a say in the design to the best design, then they will make more compromises. What do you do in situations where you've got clients, sometimes clients, they, they just want to be heard or they want to be seen, like that their idea is present in 
whatever the final design is. And those aren't always well-informed. They're not often good ideas, really. Like, how do you navigate those tricky political situations and also maintain the integrity of the work? Well, it's, it's tricky and it doesn't always work. I mean, I am a pretty good teacher. So I tried to educate clients. I tried to show them why certain things work and other things don't work and tried to make visual analogies, show them things from history or present or tell a narrative about another company that may be similar and why they did it so well and try to pick the right examples so that it's a learning process. I'm not great at selling. I am good at teaching. Going back to sketching for a minute, there's a pretty famous story, because maybe you can think of some an urban legend about the work with Citibank where you did a napkin sketch and it ended up being this $1.5 million project. And I paid $50,000 for that. <laughs> I see this all over the internet and I thought, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> maybe they're counting for it. What did pay well was the follow-up when I did a lot of promotional and credit card work for them, you know, on sort of a retainer for two or three years. But the logo itself wasn't all that well paid. I did do it in a, in a second and then spent a lot of time showing examples of use and understand, making everybody understand that it was viable. I don't think they ever chose it. I think what happened is they ran out of time and it ended up, I think there were several, they were looking at several logos at the time. And Fallon, who was the advertising agency at that time that represented City in, back in the day, it's, you know, it's now about 25 years old, that logo. They picked it up and stuck it on an ad and it looked good. And everybody said, yeah, that'll be the logo. <laughs> you know, could just, but, the, but the point was that when I was working with the initial client, this really nice woman named Susan Avard, it was done very quickly. She expected much more iteration in my design process than there actually was. I mean, we made a few tweaks to it after we, we had made the first one. I think we changed the arc shape and made it smaller or some such thing. But it was really right there in the, in the sketch. What I find fascinating about it is sort of the positioning and the expectation of what the logo was going to represent at that time, which was a marriage between Travelers, Insurance Company, and Citicorp. And they were going to use the name City, but it had to reflect Travelers. So the arc was actually a metaphoric umbrella because Travelers had an umbrella. And the bottom of the T had a little handle at the bottom that you could hold. So it made this sort of abstract umbrella that nobody ever really saw but me. But when it was explained to the corporate executives because of this merger, that that became part of the selling part of it. So it's 20 years later, and City invites me on the 20th anniversary of the logo to talk to a lot of people in the corporation. And they had this, this sort of, you know, webcast with me. And I explained why the logo looked that way, and nobody knew it. No one in the company even thought about travelers. They thought it meant optimism. And that's fine. But you, the thing is that you can recognize a form and determine yourself what it means without having to be hit over the head with it. I like the fact that it could actually last because somebody just made up another narrative to go with it, which was great. I'm glad we corrected the record here. And it, you know, it reminds me of this other story about Picasso that's also probably apocryphal where he does a napkin sketch and 
asked for $10,000 and Furman says, well, that only took you five minutes. And he said, well, actually it took me 30 years. And you have this quote in Debbie Millman's book that says to invent, you have to take the odd and strange combination of the years of experience and knowledge on one side of the brain and on the other side, the necessity for the brief to make sense. How do you kind of balance that in the, the work that you do? Well, that's very mysterious because the thought process itself is a mysterious thing and how it actually starts to evolve that is a little bit more skill and understanding. But I always looked at my brain like this funny kind of slot machine where on one side, there's a specific brief that I've been given. And on the other side is every book I've read, every movie I've seen, everything that intrigued me, every art exhibit I've ever been to, everything I know about history, it's all in there. It's all this stuff that's recorded over years, years and years of being recorded up there. And you put in the coin and you let the stuff roll around in your brain and then the cash comes out. It's a slot machine. I'm being facetious about it, but it kind of does work that way. And very often, if you think really hard about how you're going to solve the problem, you're never going to solve the problem. You have to let your subconscious work for you. Sometimes sketching helps because you just start sketching blindly and maybe some form begins to happen and you begin to connect pieces of information with something that's visual. Everybody works differently. But I find that if I'm thinking real hard about something, I tend not to solve it well. I really have to distract myself and then something else will come to the fore. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. Support for Design Better comes from Gusto, who make running a small business easy. Get three months free at gusto.com slash design better once you run your first payroll. I've run a few small businesses in my career and each time I've set one up, the prospect of figuring out payroll and HR, it just freaks me out. But then I found Gusto. It's an incredible tool that Eli and I use to run our own payroll here at Design Better. Gusto made setup easy, and they even helped us sort out tax registrations with multiple states. Gusto is a brilliant tool. It's well-designed, and it's incredibly usable. Design Better listeners can get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com designbetter. Can't recommend it enough. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash Design Better to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited time buy one, get one offers. Let's do a little thought experiment together. Imagine for a moment that you no longer have access to your computer. Say you spill coffee on it. It has an unrecoverable crash or someone steals it. How much would a total loss of your data disrupt your work and your life? It would be significant, right? This is why you should be protecting all your work with an unlimited backup and recovery solution like CrashPlan. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. I dropped my laptop on marble stairs just about an hour before stepping on stage at a big conference in Europe, and I lost my presentation. I didn't have a backup. CrashPlan would have saved me in that moment. Businesses of all sizes can benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities. Buy as many user licenses as you need, and then you can easily manage them all under one account. Just go to CrashPlan.com slash design better to sign up for a free trial. Try it out and see what you think. 
Take advantage of their limited time buy one, get one offer for Design Better listeners. That's CrashPlan.com slash Design Better. Back up better with CrashPlan. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. If you sit all day at work, like most of us do, and you've never tried a desk that can transition between sitting and standing, let me tell you, it's a complete game changer. I often struggle with hip pain that's caused by prolonged sitting, and a standing desk has helped me switch up my posture during the workday so I can avoid that pain and just feel better. Standing while I work, it helps me get those creative juices flowing, and it helps me focus and stay productive. I'm way more alert, which is helpful, especially after lunch. Each standing desk from Uplift Desk is built with solid materials. They have so many different beautiful woods to choose from. They're built to last, and you can customize it to match your space. Plus, you get free shipping, free returns, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Just go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5, and you'll get 5% off your order. That's upliftdesk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Check them out. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite. And now, back to the show. You also seem pretty intentional about creating scenarios for discovery. So you live outside of New York City these days and then come back into the city and you've said that you have to get back to the city, otherwise you wouldn't have any ideas. So there's like this awareness of like what sort of energy you have to be around. And then in your studio, your painting studio, what you allow in, you know, the types of things you listen to, watching old movies, these are things that They're intentional choices that either enable the work or at least don't hinder the work. Can you talk about cultivating that self-awareness for creating that state of discovery? Well, you know, urban life is terrific because there's so many things going on at once that you can't help but notice something. It's not the same every day. I walk to work every day, four days a week for as long as I've been a pentagram, pretty much the same walk. And we moved to a new space, and now the walk is a little bit longer. But every day I would notice something new. Every day I would notice a sign and people were wearing something I hadn't seen them wear before. There's a new restaurant across the street. 
the park looks like a mess. The park looks great. You know, different moments in time that would sort of begin to allow me to sort of take in the now and compare it to what was and what I know. And that in those things are pieces of information. Just accidental things you see, what someone's wearing, a car you never saw before. I mean, all that's right available for you in Manhattan. In Salisbury, Connecticut, you see a lot of trees. They're really pretty. There's mountain ranges. That's real nice. There are cars when you're out on the road. And that's why in my painting studio, there's essentially me and the room and that I've seen a million times and some kind of uh, music or television or what have you. I, I listen to old movies because I don't have to look at the TV screen because I'm painting. And I already heard, I already know the story, so I can sort of listen. It's like watching a movie in my head while I'm painting, which is is sort of a nice distraction and lets me, because I'm distracted, I can make discoveries within the painting. If I'm concentrating too heavily on the painting, then the painting gets rigid and tight. Just to dig into that a little further, you once said that you have to be in a state of play to design. If you're not in a state of play, you can't make anything. How should we or could we connect with that state of play more regularly? I guess I have to define what that means. It's a little bit like the thing I was describing with the slot machine in the brain. You have to be in this kind of ability of what I would call free fall, where you're not especially grounded to any specific notion, where you already have accumulated a lot of knowledge, and you have to make the space to make a lot of mistakes or do something that looks stupid until you begin to make the discoveries. And it's a process you have to go through. And when you go through the process, you usually can push something forward. It's too easy, the older you get, to do something you already know how to do. And it's very hard to make mistakes. But mistakes are where you learn everything from the beginning of your career to the end. Do you see your relationship between the painting that you do and your design work as sort of exploring that area of play, or what other ways do they influence each other? Well, really, there are two different ways of being. I mean, it's not like I run out and do still lives and landscapes. You know, I've been painting these maps for 25 years, and they push a fairly narrow terrain, but they do push it. They're very laborious, and they're very time-consuming, and they're very deliberate. And, you know, I can only accomplish so much in, in a weekend and then they grow, and the space in between helps the map painting because there's space in between. And at Pentagram, my life is exactly the opposite. I work with a lot of people. I have a team. I have a lot of partners. There's stuff going on all over the place. I'm walking around and making past decisions. I'm on Zoom. I'm on the phone. I'm in talking to a client in person or virtually or in in a cab or traveling or all these things, other things are happening during the week. And then I go back to the country and I go back into this very deliberate situation and they balance each other very well. The paintings feel almost like meditations to me. They feel like, you know, this focused, deliberate, protracted relationship or engagement. And you've described your paintings as not factual, even though they're maps, they present certain data and factual information, but they're emotional. I'm curious if you could unpack that for us. How are they emotional to you? Well, I'm selecting the information. So some of them are political. Some of them are social comments. Some of them are funny. Some of them are impossible. Some of them are places I just love. And so I highlight the places I like. I get to control them. They're my information. They're sort of right. They're not like 
imaginative maps. It's not like, oh, I've imagined some other planet, a place, and I don't do that. There are places I know about, I actually work for maps, and I distort them for my own amusement and pleasure. One painting was at the Cooper Hewitt for about six months. It was a painting of the United States. It was about, I think it was about 10 feet wide. It was a wide painting. And there were two people. I was up there in the, in the middle of the week picking something up, and there were, there were two people standing in front of the painting talking to each other, and they were talking about some road trip they'd taken across country. And they were sort of navigating which way they went, but the roads were all in the wrong place, you know, and they didn't seem to notice that or care because they related to the map as a kind of truth. How did you first come to maps as a, as a way to, to do art? I used to do very satirical illustrations that were used um, in the New York Times and in various magazines. Really, from an early point in my career, I think it started in the early 80s, and they were informational graphic, but they were, they were satirical. And that led me to paint this little series of small maps with complicated information that were very political, you know, about locations of the world. And there was a collector. They were in this little show that was, I think, at SUNY College in Westchester County of New York. It's about maybe 40 minutes out of New York City. And the show was uh, about word art. And so this map of South America was in it. That was really about all the sort of like Nazis in South America and stuff like that. You know, it was sort of just a, and probably a little bit true, sort of bigoted, you know, a point of view map. And this couple, Marvin and Ruth Sackner, bought it. And it turned out they had a collection. They, li- they were from Florida and they had a collection called Concrete Poetry. And they collected constructivist works, data and works that had word art. And they had really phenomenal con- collections. So it became part of their collection. And it encouraged me to look at this thing more seriously as opposed to these things that I did one off. Now that particular map is in the Perez Museum in Florida. I mean, it's in their collection, and it was the very first thing I painted. So I began painting them bigger. I thought, gee, this stuff would look better big. And it did. And a gallery handled me, and another gallery got me to do prints. And between the two, I have a gallery fine art career that goes on. And I try not to mix them, though sometimes I do. Well, I had a graduate school painting professor once say to me and the rest of my class that being creative, a creative career, being a painter is inherently dangerous because you're sort of inviting others' judgment and criticism. That's kind of just like inherent in the work. I wonder if you could speak to that, like how criticism through your career as a creative person has manifested and how you've dealt with it and built a relationship with it. There hasn't been very much critical writing about my paintings. There's, I mean, on my design, there are people who think I'm terrible. You know, like, it's just, you know, I don't really care. It just doesn't have anything to do with anything. When I work for clients, I want them to be happy with the work because that's my job. When I work for myself, I want to be happy with the work. Because that's my job, too. That's all I can say. I don't, you know, like, I don't, if somebody doesn't like my paintings, I don't care. They don't have to like them. My client has to like what I'm doing. That's hard. Now, I get commissions for paintings. I just painted a Porsche, and I'm having a retrospective show in Munich in June, which is called Type is Image, which we were talking about before. And it's all typography, but some of the typography is hand-painted. Porsche is in the show. 
That sounds fun. It was it's fun to do. But you know, I mean, if people write a bad review or get, re- I, I really there's nothing. I, I there's nothing I can do about that. We talked briefly about teaching. Are you still teaching? Are you still enjoying it? Or if you're not, what what did you get out of it while you're doing it? I taught at the School of Visual Arts for 39 years. And I recently, last year, discovered that in my 39 years of teaching, I had only four black students. And how is that possible? I just found that astounding that I never even thought about it and ashamed about it. And uh, I called up City College of New York, and four of us at Pentagram took students, and a lot of the students are working here now. And I'm going to be doing it next fall, too, but I didn't do it this semester. Paula, clearly a lot of design these days is happening on screens instead of in a physical space. And I'm curious what, from your perspective, screen designers need to learn from graphic designers who have done prints in various capacities. What do screen designers miss? Everything I do exists on screens. I mean, r- right now, my public theater posters are all, all on screens. They're in the subway. Sometimes Some of them are put up in the traditional subway spot, but they also have the digital screens in the subways. So the posters there, they're, they're animated. They move. They do terrific things. Every identity I, I do ends up as an Instagram post and a website. I mean, we all live in screens. So I don't view it as some differential. Now, if you're talking about programming, you know, I I don't program my work. I get somebody else to do that. But if you're talking about design, design is for, you know, it's for paper, it's for screens, it's sides of buildings, it's all kinds of things. And that, you know, it's one world of it. I think problem with the web world is it was developed by technologists who really didn't understand design very well and do do sort of some strange things that have become codified that I think we have to have to get rid of in another generation. But that always happened. I remember when I first saw, I guess it was Adobe software. There was a kind of software that came out where the type was drawn really badly. It was just terrible to work with because the craft was pulled out of the technology and it just became this kind of ugly type that everybody was using because it was convenient because it was on the computer. That was a period where you had to walk away from the computer and do it yourself and put it back into the computer until they got it right. Now, this is such an incredible time for digital design. I mean, the equipment that the software for typography is amazing. The ability to program it is amazing. The ability for a designer at a school to create their own fonts is amazing. That's great. Paul, we've already talked a bit about your influence over the years, but what are you listening to or reading or watching right now that's really inspiring you or exciting you? Oh, that's a really good question. I can't give you an answer because I think that I have become such a political junkie that it has ended up obsessing me in the past couple of years and really worrying about the state of our government and the state of the country and the state of the environment. And I need to go on a vacation and read a book. I mean, like I get up and I read two newspapers every morning and I really, I, I, you know, I read them in bed online and I'm bombarded by that kind of media and it, it is taking up a lot of brain space. On the other oh. hand, it inspires me to make angry art. <laughs> There's something coming out of it. That's great. Well, Paula, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a real honor and pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It was fun.
Keeping on the theme of mid-century modern design, we're going to take a look at Heath Ceramics, which was founded by Edith Heath in the 1940s and is a staple of that mid-century modern look. I had the unique opportunity to visit the San Francisco studio of Heath Ceramics recently, got a look into their process, got to take some fun photographs, which you can catch on our website. And this episode is sponsored in part by Heath Ceramics. We want to share a little bit about the history of their brand and what makes them so special. And today we talk with Julie Muniz, who's a Heath archivist, as well as Rosalie Wild, Heath's design director. Eli, you eat off of Heath ceramics every day, right? It is a constant part of my life. My folks have had dishes for a long time, and I just love them as a brand. Me too. We've got Heath tile, this dimensional tile on our fireplace in our bedroom, and I love it. I, it's the first thing I see every morning when I wake up. We're big fans of Heath ceramics. Their design and their history is very relevant still today, and we're excited for you to hear a little bit more about Heath Ceramics. My name is Rosalie Wild, and my role at Heath is design director. A clay body is a clay recipe. Edith Heath was super interested in clay bodies, in the science of ceramics, and she developed this clay body we still use today that we call our manganese clay body. It's got a brownish tone, some people call it the brown clay body. She was trying to create something that she thought was beautiful, and that was a major element of it. But at the other elements of it are that she was really thinking about energy efficiency and using local materials. For 75 years, Edith Heath was reacting all along the way to things that were happening in the world, right? Anything from the economy to changes in how we understand the environment and societal shifts. And when you really look closer at everything that's been made at Heath over all of this time, you realize it isn't really just one thing. We've all had some experience where we encountered Heath for the first time or you bought your first piece and you maybe lock that in. That's what the brand is. But there's so much more. And so in a way, I've kind of let go of some of that control of staying so close to a particular idea of what Heath is. My name is Julie Muniz, and I am the archivist here at Heath Ceramics. One of the nice things about Heath is that it is very clean design. It, it, it doesn't take over in terms of pattern or spectacular color. It has this nice material element to it. And really the materiality of the pieces is what makes it unique. Edith really believed here are objects that are made of the earth and they're glazed with other minerals that come from the earth. So she wanted that materiality to come through and she created a clay body that was really high in magnesium. So that magnesium comes through and creates that wonderful speckle that Heath is known for. She also started wiping the rim of a lot of the plates and cups and things so that you could see the raw clay underneath it. So you have this reminder what it came from and where it's from. And then she also liked to keep a lot of her glazes kind of very earth tones. Yet again, she wanted to remind you of the organic nature of her wear and the soul that it had within it. And I think that still reverberates today with restaurants and chefs that like that 
their food can become this beautiful centerpiece on a plate. Heath ceramics is timeless and beautiful. These are the types of objects you pass on from generation to generation. The type of gift you bring to a wedding or the thing that you'd want to put on a beautiful Thanksgiving table. You can save 15% off your first order by visiting dbtr.co slash heathceramics. That's dbtr.co slash heathceramics. Place your order before October 31st at midnight. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.